very good to be together tonight, if not in body, at least in spirit. And it's best of all that we would hear from God's word. Jesus said, my words are a solid rock. If anyone builds his life upon them, he will be safe. And we pray that tonight the preaching of God's word will be saving, that will be effective, that it will be a strong refuge for us. So I would highly encourage you, if you have a Bible nearby, grab it and open it up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking through it, and you're going to need to look through the entire chapter, uh, especially at the beginning of the sermon. So grab a Bible, turn open to page, or uh, to chapter 8 of Romans, and we're going to focus on verses 28 and 30, but we'll be noticing some themes throughout the whole chapter. So turn there, and as you turn, I'll ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Let's pray. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light, brings understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant for your commandments. In them alone do we have life. We pray, Lord, that the unfolding of your word, not just in the writing of it, but in the preaching of it, would bring understanding and that we would open our mouths and pant for your word as for a precious stream that quenches our thirst, our spiritual thirst. Lord, help us in this time to hear what you would have us to hear, to understand, to make us, that you'd make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless this time. In your name we pray, amen. Follow along, <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, I'll start reading in verse 28. <clears throat> and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. <clears throat> the theme of Romans chapter 8 is spirit-filled hope and help in the midst of bitter conflict and difficult circumstances. This is the part where you're going to need to look through the chapter with me. Notice and trace with me through this entire chapter the many enemies of the sons of God that the Apostle Paul draws our attention to. In verses 1 and 2, believers struggle against the condemnation of the law the weakness of their flesh in verse 3, and the sin in their flesh. Believers strain to wrench their thoughts away from sinful and earthly things to spiritual and heavenly things, verses 5 and 6. They do battle against their own natural hostility toward God, verses 7 and 8. Those who are in Christ wrestle with the sinful deeds of their bodies, verses 12 and 13. And strive instead to be led by the Spirit of God, verse 14. Believers grapple with fear and slavery, verse 15. The brokenness and futility of creation, verses 20 through 22. And the corruption of their own bodies, 
verse 23. And as if this wasn't all bad enough, believers often in the very midst of their fiery trials find they're not able even to cry out in prayer for deliverance from their sufferings. Verse 26. Many enemies from without, from within, from around that are attacking the saints of God. And yet, this chapter is filled with hope. By the end of the chapter, Paul writes, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How can that be? How can the weary struggles of this often maligned and constantly beaten down band of Christians give way to glory? The big answer, in verse 37, of course, is Christ, through Christ and his love for us. But the answer is also more specific than that. God's word of comfort to those in the middle of great suffering is not Merely take heart, Christ loves you. But all things work together for your good. Yes, all things, even the hard ones, especially the hard ones, God uses for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In our verses this evening, we see Paul offers the Roman Christians a present comfort grounded in a purpose made in eternity past, which leads to a glorious future. Let's examine each of these components individually, and we'll see how together they all add up to an invincible hope for Christians in the midst of dire circumstances. First, number one, Christian comfort is founded on the eternal purpose of God. In order to follow the chronological sweep of Paul's argument, we need to move the actual verses of our text out of order. So for now, we skip over verse 28 and read verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The elements of this verse can be broken down into the foundation which is foreknowledge and predestination, and the final goal are conformity to the image of God's Son. So first, the foundation of God's purpose, which is his will. Whatever God wants to do, he does. And though Paul could have said this in a bare and sterile and scientific sort of way, instead he uses the language of love. And that might sound counterintuitive to you. Foreknowledge, predestination doesn't sound like a loving words to us. But follow this. Paul could have said, God has sovereignly and infallibly decreed that we should be holy. That's not untrue. And he has. He has willed infallibly and sovereignly that all his children should be holy. And that is comforting. However, instead he uses these words, foreknown and predestined. John Stott writes that the Hebrew verb to know expresses much more than mere intellectual cognition. It denotes a personal relationship of care and affection. Thus, when God knows people, he watches over them. 
John Murray adds, no is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. Whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. These men are pointing out that when the Bible talks about God foreknowing, foreknowing whom he would predestine, as it says in our verses, it is emphatically not saying that God looks into the future and foresees that these people will deserve his election and love, that they will exercise faith. Rather, foreknowledge means that God has lovingly set his mind on those whom he intends to choose as his own. He foreknows us in love. Next, we see the unshatterable connection between God's foreknowledge and his predestination of believers. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Once God has fixed his loving, eternal gaze of foreknowledge upon a person, he then determines to display his love in predestining him or her to salvation through Christ. Having loved them in his foreknowledge, he plans the manifestation of that love in his predestination. And again, predestination is not a cold, stark, mental procedure. It is the loving, kind, and generous plan of a benevolent God. Just listen to the caring predestination of Jeremiah 29.11. The nation of Judah was in exile, wondering in agony if God had forsaken them and abandoned them in a foreign country. And what does God say to them? God comfortingly and tenderly declares to his exiled people, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is predestinating language, plan. God is asserting his mighty will and his plan for his people. And yet it's comforting. It's not dry and intellectual. The doctrine of God's predestination is a comforting doctrine. It reminds us when the world seems chaotic, filled with senseless and random disasters, that there is one who sits on the throne who sees the end from the beginning, and who has a plan, even in this. What is God's purpose, though, in foreknowing and predestining us? We know that he has foreknown his children and predestined them. But what what is his end game here? We know from verse 28 that it is to do us good. But that's a little vague. What does that mean? Of all the words in verse 28, which is a magnificent scriptural promise that people pour over and memorize and run to, and of all the words in that verse, perhaps the one we never take time to carefully define is the word good. We assume that we know what that means. But what kind of good is it specifically? In verse 29, we see that the good that God has planned for us is that we would match his son, Jesus. That we would grow in likeness to him. That we would put on his image and become more and more like the holy son of God, Jesus Christ. So that's God's purpose 
for us. And here is the foundation, the past foundation of our present hope. In eternity past, God set his gracious purpose upon us. He firmly set his will and determined that he would set aside a people for himself, that they would become like his perfectly righteous son. That was his plan. That is his plan. The holy, holy, holy Lord of all heaven and earth said, I will choose them to be mine, to dwell with me in perfect splendor and beauty and righteousness and joy for all eternity. In the words of Ephesians 1.4, God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Friend, do you see yourself and your life of faith in Jesus through the lens of God's foreknowing and predestining plan for your holiness? Everything changes when you view each day as a single step in the lifelong process of God making you more and more like his son. Christ did not die that we might go on living in selfishness and sin. He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5. Christian, your life is meant to become more and more like that of your Savior. God's eternal purpose for you, before you were born or your distant ancestors, before God called Abram, before he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, before he said, let there be light, God's purpose for you, for me, for all who are in Christ, is that they would be conformed to the image of his Son. Verse 29 of Romans 8 calls us to see ourselves in this way, as God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Second, point number two, second, Christian comfort is sustained by God's providence in all of life. Now we return to verse 28 in that magnificent promise, for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who feel they cannot take another step, who know deep in their souls this verse 26 struggle to pray, who are so utterly burdened beyond their strength that they despair of life itself. God speaks to these precious children, not an empty promise, not some trite platitude about how Jesus loves you and that will make you feel better when you're down. Instead, God's promise is a thundering proclamation of his sovereign purpose and intention behind and underneath all our trials. I will not, declares the Lord, allow the evil in your life and in this world detract one single bit from the good things that I have prepared for you. The wickedness and fallenness that is rampant across creation shall not rob my children of anything good that I desire to give to them. These tribulations will not remove from your good, but they will add to it. The enemies of your soul will become servants of your eternal benefit. The clouds you so much dread 
are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. What a precious promise to cling to in times of trouble and worry. What a mighty fortress to run into and hide from the storms of this evil generation. This treasured truth has been the source of comfort for believers for at least the last 2,000 years. But we must continue to remind ourselves of the very specific content of this purpose and this comfort. It is crystal clear that the verse 28 good that God is working in our lives is sanctification. That is the good that we would grow in similarity to our Lord Jesus. Therefore, when a Christian undergoes hardship, he or she can know this is God's plan for my holiness. Through this, he is conforming me to the image of his son. This means that the responsibility of a suffering Christian is to pursue Christ-likeness. And we can do so in the rock-solid confidence that God will use this suffering to make us like Jesus. He will. He has planned it. He has purposed it. He has set us aside to make us like his son. And this leads to another most practical question for all of us to ask ourselves. Do we see, we understand, even when undergoing excruciating ordeals that test us to the utmost limit, do we understand that our ultimate problem is our own sin? And therefore, our ultimate good is that we would leave it behind. God forgives us of our sin, not because we pursue goodness, but only through the blood of Jesus shed for us. But his plan is not that we would forever be stained and wretched sinners. Heaven cannot endure any unholiness within her gates. God's plan for us is far better than merely tolerating us for all eternity. He intends to make us perfectly and entirely righteous in Christ, not just legally by justification, although he does, but also moment to moment, experientially by sanctification, and finally and completely by glorification when we see him face to face. So as you suffer, dear brother or sister in Christ, know that the the good that God intends for you might not be freedom from your pain as soon as possible. God may be telling you there is something far worse than the pain that you are feeling right now. It is far worse to remain in sin and be separate from me than for you to learn obedience through what you're suffering. Above all, you can know that God's purpose for you in your suffering, indeed in all things, is that you would behold with unveiled face the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Now, I, I want you to hear me. I'm not saying that in every hard season of your life, your primary goal is to figure out what specific sin God is trying to root out and put it to death. What I am saying, what Romans 8.28 is saying, is that God's plan for us is not that we would live a carefree and happy-go-lucky life. 
God has higher priorities for his children that they would never feel pain. This is hard for us to hear in the generally pleasant and technologically advanced lives that we lead with plenty of ease and little lack of anything that we need. But could it be that we fear the lack of food on the table more than we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Might we fear the loss of earthly comfort more than the loss of eternal life? Do we or do I lie awake at night full of anxiety about our lives and what we will eat and what we will wear instead of watching and praying and seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness? God has better things in store for us than lives of ease and comfort, free from every kind of suffering and pain. He desires that we would see and love and imitate his son, Jesus Christ. God is working in all things for our good that we would realize and cling on to and run after this precious truth. Every circumstance of our lives is predestined by our Heavenly Father to contribute to our growth in holiness every season. And until we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die, to go to be with Christ is gain. The trials and hardships of our lives and God's sanctifying purpose in the midst of them will make no sense to us until we can repeat those words of Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to live. My life is about Christ and likeness to him. And to die is gain because I get to go be with him. Not just to be happy, but to be like him in glory. So God is gracious. He reminds us here in his word, I have foreknown you, I have predestined you to become like my son. Nothing will frustrate my plan for your eternal good. Thirdly and lastly, we see that Christian comfort anticipates infallible future glory. After having meditated on God's purpose for believers in eternity past, verse 30 leaps forward into a breathtaking list of the sequence of spiritual benefits that God promises to those who belong to him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul isn't listing these beautiful spiritual benefits so that we might have a systematic theology class. The point of him listing them here is to show the inexorable, undefeatable sequence that God intends to lead his children through and the fact that one step infallibly follows another. That we can rest that those whom God has predestined, he has called and he has justified and he has glorified. And commentators make much of the fact that glorification, which is a future reality for believers, is in the past tense in this verse. It's so sure. It's so solid. Paul is so confident that God will carry out his saving purpose in our lives that it's as if it had already happened to him. So these, th th this linking together of these things is not just that we would understand what these things mean, although they are beautiful truths, but that we would know that they come one after another, always 
for those who are called to Christ. Let's look at each of these elements quickly, and I want you to listen particularly to what each of them has to do with sin and with Christ. Calling, justification, and glorification. Firstly, in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. In calling, we are convinced of our sin and enabled to embrace Jesus. It's calling. Also the catechism. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith alone. In justification, we are forgiven of our sins. And through faith, we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. And though the catechism doesn't have a specific answer to the question, what is glorification? It does say this. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. So in glorification, God makes the souls of believers perfect in holiness. He completes for all time and finally that work of being conformed to the image of Christ. And at the resurrection, we are made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Glorification is the final goal and destiny of every person who has been redeemed by Christ. Perfect righteousness, total bliss in the presence of God. Notice how each of these elements relates to sin in Christ. Our calling proceeds from an understanding that we are sinners to an open-hearted embracing of Christ as our only hope. Justification frees us from the condemnation of sin by covering us with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Glorification completely wipes out any remaining trace of our corruption, removing any final barrier that would prevent us from beholding and worshiping and rejoicing in Christ forever. This is the beautiful future that awaits each and every person who trusts in Christ. Freedom from sin. Not just its consequences, but its very presence. No more struggling with temptation and besetting sins. No more of the problem of Romans 7. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. No more of that. No more of these troublesome trials and moral predicaments but only perfect peace and rest and the opportunity to be with Christ and enjoy Him forever. And all this is why God's saints, His holy ones, can be assured that all things work together for their good. 
In the grand scale of history, from eternity past to eternity future, God's plan to set aside and sanctify his beloved ones will not be frustrated. The powers of this earth and the problems of this life, all our heartsickness and disillusionment, all our disappointments and griefs are eased and assuaged by the knowledge that nothing can derail God's irresistible purpose, his careful and tender providence, and his unwavering intention to bring his children all the way home to glory. Let's pray. God, we need the comfort of your word every day, in every season, we need it. We pray, Lord, that it would be a comfort to us, that you would bring home to us this beautiful truth that the God of all holiness will not leave us in our sin, that those who trust in him and come to Christ will be cleansed, be forgiven, be sanctified, that those whom you predestine, you call, and those whom you call, you justify. And those whom you justify, you glorify. Bless us in the knowledge of this truth, Lord. Please forgive us our sins and draw us towards your Son, towards conformity to his image more and more. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.